Well, praise God. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles today to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. And uh, the title of today's message is Revival Praying. Revival Praying. And I'm going to start with uh, just a basic question. And basic question uh, that I'm beginning with is this. What has happened to the church? What has happened to the church? You know, many people can argue that about 120 years ago that the church was faced with liberalism. And as science began to change, as Darwinism began to progress, there were many in the church that said, well, we have to keep up with the scientific age. And thus liberalism was introduced into the church. Liberalism being that which denied all the supernatural miracles in the Bible. And of course it denies the miracles and one of the key miracles is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Liberalism would have taken the Bible and taken the Word of God and the message of the Gospel and made it nothing more than an example, an ethical example for good living. And so there is some of that. Some people think that what's happened to the church is, well, it hasn't kept up with the times, right? So it's important to keep up with the times. And there are some people who think, well, you know, the message of the gospel is no longer relevant to young people, which, by the way, I find absolutely amazing because we had young people 2,000 years ago and they were saved, right? So they were saying, well, the gospel isn't relevant, so we got we to gotta change the gospel, maybe make the gospel a little bit more hip, you know, make the gospel sound a little bit more edgy in order to keep up with the youth. That seems a little bit different than what Paul says about the gospel. He calls it the power of God unto salvation. That the gospel itself is the very, very power of God. Then there were some in the church who said, well, we need to, we need to soften the tone of the gospel. And if we soften the tone a little, let's take out the things related to sin. Let's take out the things related to judgment you know let's talk about the love of jesus the love of jesus how much jesus loves everybody we got to love everybody and you know let's take the edge the offense off the gospel of course there were some that said we need to simplify the gospel let's make it real simple let's take out all this theology let's take out everything else and let's break the gospel down to four, five easy steps. And if we can get those people to understand those four or five steps, they'll be saved. And then I think one of the worst things that has happened to the gospel over the last hundred years or so is this idea that salvation is the result of human decision. That I, I make a decision for Christ. You know, one plus one plus one equals three, and that's all there is to the gospel. And I omit from the gospel that true salvation is a divine work of grace by God. And so that's exactly what has happened. You get a nice little track, and it says if you believe this, if you believe that, and you believe the other thing, you're saved. And of course, that's not the glorious gospel that was preached by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
It has always been my belief, and it continues to be my belief today, that intellectual belief of specific facts around the gospel does not constitute saving faith. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his great book, great book, I'm a big fan of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, but he wrote a book called Revival. And in the book he says this, Seek God. Seek to know God. Seek to know His love. Seek to be filled with His knowledge and all the fullness of God. He goes on to say, but this seems to have vanished out of our whole conception, and I suggest that this may be because we have become so afraid of false experiences that we are shutting out experience altogether. Simply put, when a person comes to faith in Christ, one of the things that the Bible says is very explicit is that they experience God. It is an experience. But so many are so afraid because they see all this extraneous, non-biblical experiences going on that they shut themselves off from the experience of God. And I believe that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is 100% correct. So many people know something or they may know mass amounts about God without ever, ever, ever knowing the true and living God. And they are like those that the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, where the Apostle Paul says that they are always learning and learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. Listen, Scripture is not an end in and of itself. The point of Scripture is to bring the believer to God, to know God, to know God experientially versus intellectually. There was a great Methodist preacher in the 1800s. His name was Samuel Chadwick, another fan of his. And Samuel Chadwick writes this, Truth without enthusiasm, morality without emotion, ritual without soul, are things Christ unsparingly condemned. You hear these words? Destitute of fire. They are nothing more than a godless philosophy, an ethical system, and a superstition. Wow. Wow, boy, they'd run them out on a rail today for saying that. Listen to these words again. It's worth repeating. Truth without enthusiasm. There's the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. You could fill yourself up with all the stuff of the Bible, have all the truth, but if it does not move you internally to godliness, it's worthless. Morality without emotion. You could be the most moral person in the world. But if you're not moved by the message of the gospel, ritual without soul, oh my goodness, we could go through all the ordinances of the church every single day, 
But if we come to the table of the Lord and we're devoid of God's presence, if we come to the table of the Lord and we have sin in our life, if we're baptized and we're not repentant of our sin, what does it profit us? It profits us nothing. Ritual without soul. These are things, he says, that Christ unsparingly condemned. In whom? He condemned it in the Pharisees. He condemned it in an empty Israel that was full of religious symbolism but had no life inside. Notice these words he goes on to say, destitute of fire. I want to pause right there because this is the essence. This is the essence of the message. Destitute of fire, lacking Holy Ghost power, lacking Holy Ghost fervency. is nothing more than a godless philosophy, an ethical system, a superstition. Listen, listen, this was precisely the case in ancient Israel. This is exactly what happened in ancient Israel. And God, what did God do in response to that? God called prophets. And the prophets came and spoke the word of the Lord. The prophets came on the scene and said, Thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. And what was the message of the prophets? Repent, repent, repent. You're turning from the living God. Repent. Go back to the things you learned at first. Repent, repent, repent. And my prayer is that in a day and age like this, that God would raise up prophets, men that would be unashamed to tell the church, repent, 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 lest we continue in our ritual. But it would be destitute of fire. That word destitute of fire, that phrase, it catches my attention. Chadwick condemned Empty religious formalism and tradition. Empty religious formulas. Let me ask you, when you wake up on Sunday morning, do you go, oh, i got to go to church today, but after church I'm going to go to here and I'm going to do this or the other thing? Or do you wake up in the morning and say, praise God, it's the Lord's day. I get to join with my brothers and sisters and I get to come to church and I get to worship the one True God. There's a profound difference between the two. You know, the study of the scriptures reveals that God chooses ordinary people. Ordinary people. To do extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. The people we read about in the scriptures is just that God sovereignly chose that their story would be recorded. But if you were to look at them among the world, they were as ordinary as ordinary could be. But God took these ordinary people and he did extraordinary things for the kingdom of God. And it's not that they possessed some kind of secret formula in and of themselves. You know, they were so spiritual, they did this. It's because they loved God. They sought God. They desired God. They wanted God to move in their life. And they were willing to say, God, whatever you have to do, move in my life. You know what's needed in the church? Men and women who say the exact same thing 
God, I want you in the worst way. God, you are the joy of my life. And God, do with me whatever you desire to do with me for the glory of your name, for the glory of Christ, for the glory of the gospel. That's what's needed in the church today. We cannot be a church that is destitute of fire. We cannot. We need Holy Ghost fire. We need Holy Ghost passion for Christ. And today I want to take a look at one man, one prophet of God, with a heart for God, who literally, who literally prayed fire from heaven. He prayed fire from heaven. And he did so among a people who were completely turned against God, that were completely apostate. And the man is the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah. And I want to examine three elements today in our text. Three elements regarding his revival prayer. We will explore, number one, the request of God that he makes. The request of God. Number two, we will explore the response from God. And number three, we will explore the result from God. The result of that prayer. So, if you haven't turned there already, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 18. And I'll read from you verses 36 to 39. Then it came about at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. By the way, there's the threes, Sunday school people. Let it be known that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant, and that I have done all these things at thy word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that thou, O Lord, art God, and that thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, They fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, He is God, the Lord, He is God. Now let me give you a little bit of background to this text. Israel at this point has gone full bore to the worship of false gods. As a matter of fact, who were the false gods? There were two primarily. One was Baal. And the other one was Asheroth. These are pagan gods. These are gods of man's creations. They were the gods of the Canaanites. And the people of God said, Well, I guess it won't hurt if we worship the God of Yahweh, but we should probably call in these other two gods as well, and they'll help us. There's a term for that. It's called syncretism. And what syncretism is, is taking false gods, false worship, and trying to integrate it into the worship of the one true God. 
There's syncretism going on in the church today. There's syncretism of other people adding other stuff to the gospel and calling it a Christian doctrine. And it's not. And there is purity in the Word of God, in the Word of God, which is why we believe and we stand with the Reformers when we say that we believe salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and that Scripture alone has all authority. What does that mean? I don't need a book by Billy Graham, or I don't need a book by John MacArthur, or I don't need a book by John Piper, okay, that comes on the same footing as Scripture. If it contradicts Scripture, that is false. Scripture is the authority. And it is the only authority, which is why we go out of our way in this church to teach Scripture. As I like to say, we pound you with the Word of God. Somebody years ago came up to me and said to me, you know, you're always pounding the Bible. You're pounding the Word of God. And I sat there, it was after church, and I was standing there listening to them, and they said, you know, you beat us, you beat us with the Word of God. And they went on and on and on, and I looked at the person, and I said, are you done? And they said, well, yeah. I go, okay, well, let me, let me tell you something. That's deliberate. I said, and it's not going to stop. Because my job, my job before God is to give clarity to the Word of God so that everybody else can come in and say, oh, the Word of God has spoken to my heart and draws them into an encounter with God. I said, you don't need any of my opinions. I said, I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed here. So what you need is this. And church, what we need is this. And this is what has to govern us, is the Word of God. And so consequently, God raised up a prophet. And that prophet was the man Elijah. And I don't have time to go into a full biography of Elijah, but if you ever want to read about a really interesting man, you want to read about the prophet Elijah. Now, Israel was being ruled by wicked leaders. King Ahaz, who is just about as bad as it gets, and his wife, Queen Jezebel. And they were sick of the worship of the one true God. So what did they do? They went out and they slew prophets of God. They killed them. And there was one obedient servant of God who served in the king's house. His name is mentioned in 1 Kings 18, named, named Obadiah. And he took a hundred of those prophets and he hid them in two different caves. He hid them by groups of 50. Well, Obadiah is going out. They're looking for Elijah. He's a wanted man because he had prophesied that God was going to withhold rain upon the nation, and it had not rained. And they're looking for Obadiah. Uh, they're looking for Elijah. And here comes Elijah. Hey, Obadiah, what's up? Right? And Obadiah says, Man, they're looking for you. They want to kill you. He said, well, I want you to do me a favor, Obadiah. He said, I want you to go back to King Ahaz and tell King Ahaz I want to meet with him. And Obadiah warns him. He goes, hey, why are you doing this to me? If I tell him I found you, he's going to kill me. He said, don't worry. God will protect you. You do it. So Obadiah goes back to King Ahaz and said, I found him. And they have this meeting. And King Ahaz says, well, 
Is it not the troubler in Israel? And Elijah tells him, I'm not the troubler of Israel. He said, but we're going to settle this issue as to who God is. He said, I want you to gather all Israel up on Mount Carmel. And I want you to get all the prophets of Baal and all the prophets of Asherah. And we're going to build an altar. And we're going to call to the heavens. And the God who sends fire from above, he will be the true God in Israel. Ahaz says, okay, let's do it. So all of Israel gathers on Mount Carmel. 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah, and who is standing there for the Lord? One man. One man. The prophet Elijah. You think the deck is stacked on this one? Big time, it is stacked. And in 1 Kings 18.21, Elijah addresses the people. Now he's addressing who? He's addressing Israel, supposedly the people of God. Look with me in your Bibles at 1 Kings 18, verse 21. Listen to the words of Elijah the prophet. And Elijah came near all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord, notice all the caps, Yahweh, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. What a challenge. He's put an awesome challenge out there, right? Hey, stop hesitating between these false gods and the one true God. Let's settle it this way. If Yahweh is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Notice the response of the people. There was no amen. There was no, I'm going to be with you. What does the word of God say? But the people did not answer him a word. This tells you how far Israel had fallen. That there was no one, no one in all the people of Israel that would stand up and say, I am with you, brother. I'm with you. Yes. So you have one man, one ordinary weird guy against an entire nation. I want you to get this scene. You know, if Elijah called on God and God did not answer what was going to happen to him, that would have cut his head off. He would have been killed. And he would have been killed by that same mob who didn't answer him a word. And listen, this is the challenge to the church today. Is it not? This is the challenge to our church. It's time for a firm decision. Whom will we worship? If the Lord is God, let us worship God. If something else is God, go worship God. And that we should be the worshipers of the living God, of His Son, Jesus Christ, of the Holy Spirit. So now let's take a look at the Word of God. Join with me in verse 36 and 37 of 1 Kings 18 as we look at the request of the prophet. Look, look at the request of God. Verse 36. 
And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel and that I am thy servant and that I have done all these things at thy word. We see Elijah's prayer in one of the darkest days. Pagan worship had taken over. Worshiping half God and half the world is not worshiping God at all. It's not worshiping God at all. Wicked leaders rule the land. Boy, is that really similar to our day today with King Ahab and Jezebel as queen. False prophets are abounding. 450 gathered there of the prophets of Baal. 400 prophets of Asherah. 850 people willing to defend paganism. By the way, you know this, right? In Scripture, the majority is 100% wrong 100% of the time. All those people that had gathered thought they were doing the right thing. All those people who had gathered thought they were worshiping and serving God. And so they come out, and one man, the man of God, the prophet of God, who was called the troubler in Israel, stands there to defend the living God. <clears throat> we see that darkness was ruling pervasive wickedness. And we even see that in our country and in the Western world. Wickedness is on a rampage. The things of the world are on a rampage, and they've infiltrated the church. They're not going to infiltrate the church. They have infiltrated what was once called the church of Jesus Christ. Proverbs Solomon says this in Proverbs 14, 34. He says, Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Look at the United States today. It's become a reproach in the world because of the ways that we're living. But listen, but God had not given up on his people. Amen. There was one man, but that one man had the ear of God. God had not given him up. God had raised this man. God had used this simple man. And he's going to use this man to bring about repentance among his people. And God has not forgotten us. Church, God has not forgotten us. I don't care how many are here. I don't care how few are here. Here's the net net of it. God has not forgotten us. And God still raises up godly men to preach godly words to godly people. And we pray that the glory of the gospel would be used to break the yoke and break the bondage of sin in those that know not God. But before our words will prevail on God's ear, our hearts must prevail upon the heart of God. Let me say that again. Before our words prevail upon the ears of God, our voice has to prevail upon the heart of God. And if we're not people of prayer, if we're not people that are going before the Lord, if we're not pleading, if we're not penitent, if we're not conscious of our life, if we're not conscious, if we don't desire the things of God, do you think your voice is going to prevail upon the ears of the Lord? God heard Elijah because 
Elijah's heart was for God. Plain and simple. Elijah didn't dial up a 911 call. Oh, God, help me now. Elijah's heart was for God. Every Tuesday night on Tuesday night Bible study, as we've been going through the, the Sermon of the Mount, I keep beating this and beating this point to death. Everything in the kingdom of God is about the heart. It's about the heart. If you judge yourself and you look at your external doings, if you look at your external acts, if you say, I go to church and I do this and I help old ladies across the street, and you justify yourself in your mind before God, but your heart is wicked before Him, you're only deceiving yourself. God calls for a pure heart. God calls for men and women who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who pant after righteousness. That's what God calls for. We may enjoy fellowship and friendliness in the church. We may enjoy our brothers and sisters in the church. But unless we are serious with God, we may never experience the fullness and the presence of of God. And how do we do that? We need revival. We need revival. We need awakening. This world, if we're walking down the corridors of this world in white garments, they're being smeared with mud and dirt and sin and garbage all over the place. We need the purging fire of God to ignite in us a pure hunger and a pure thirst for the things of God. And so we see Elijah in this prayer in verse 36. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Listen to his prayer. Let it be known this day that thou art God in Israel, and that I am thy servant, and that I have done these things at thy word. Elijah prays for the honor of God. Elijah prays, for the name of God. And he boldly confesses before all those wicked prophets that he is a slave of the one true God. He is a doulos, like the word that's used in the New Testament. He is a piece of property of the one true God. And so he says, let all the nation know, I'm not up here on my own accord. You have asked me to come here. Look at verse 37 as part of the request. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their hearts back again. Here's the request. Hear me, O God. May all these people, who was there? The nation of Israel, the king the prophets of Baal. Hear me, God, let all these people know that I, that thou art God and that you will turn their hearts, that you will turn their hearts back. This request of Elijah should be written on our hearts, right? Number one, let it be known that thou art God, Yahweh, the God. That's what we need people to know about this church. That's what we need people to know about us. Are you a slave? Are you a servant? Are you bound to the Lord God Almighty? Do they know that? That should be known. Second of all, that this people would know 
that thou would turn our hearts back to God. I say this and I say this without apology. Each and every one of us hearts needs to be turned back to God. All of us. All of us. We need to flee to God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel needs to be the most preeminent and the most dominant thing in our lives. We are to have no other love but to love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, all of thy soul, all of thy mind, and all of thy strength. And all the other things of the world that we cling so tightly to, we have to, we have to get rid of them. We have to get rid of them. What other reason do we have to assemble here? Listen, we don't need to tell God what to do and when to do it. Is not our God sovereign over everything and everyone and every circumstance in our life? If we genuinely gather to pray as we say we do to God, we need hearts that desire God. You know, you can pray and say words, and then you can pray and move the heart of God. Many people will utter prayers. Many people are very formulistic in their prayers. Many people will cry out to God in terms of need. But the person whose heart is after God seeks God for fellowship, seeks God for communion, seeks God for a move of God upon their life. So much of what is called prayer today is nothing but laundry lists and need lists. But do you pray that God that you would hear me, God that you would quicken me, God that you would make me alive, God that you would use me for the kingdom of God, especially in this critical hour. So we looked at the request. Now let's look at the response of God. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now here's an interesting thing. What was Elijah calling on God for? He was calling on God to send fire from heaven. He took 12 stones and he built up the altar of God, each of the 12 stones representing one of the 12 tribes of Israel. He then dug a trench around the altar. And he sent somebody, he said, get buckets of water and dump water all over the altar, right? So that it filled the trench. The wood that he placed was consumed with water. Now there's something here that's a little crazy. If you want fire from wood. You don't wet it. But that's not what God told Elijah. He said, not only am I going to show you who I am, but I'm going to show you that I am the God of the impossible. So this altar that was in a trench of water with wet wood doused by buckets of water and Elijah calls to God, show these people who you are, God. Show them that you are the true and living God. And verse 38, then fire fell from the Lord. Right there, miracle, boom, fire fell from heaven. What do I believe the scripture means when it says fire fell from heaven? 
I believe that the scripture means that literal fire fell from heaven. God answered. Could you imagine the shock and the chagrin of all that had gathered there, especially the prophets of Baal, who spent six hours marching and chanting, and nothing happened, and they got so frustrated, they took their knives and they started cutting their bodies and cutting their head, and the blood was running down. And in the meantime, there's Elijah leaning on a rock, mocking them, saying, hey, maybe your God is on vacation. Maybe he doesn't know. Hey, maybe your God is going to the bathroom and he's not hearing what you're saying. Hey, maybe your God is doing all these different things. And then he steps up there, builds the altar of God, says a simple prayer. Show them, Lord. Show them, Lord, who thou art. Show them that you are the one true God in Israel. And boom! Fire falls from heaven. And not only does fire fall from heaven, but look at how the scripture records it. The fire of the Lord fell. Oh, man. And it consumed. Notice this. It consumed the sacrifice. So on top of that wet altar was a wet bull. And what did the fire do? It consumed it all. And not only did it consume the wet bull, but it consumed the wood and the stones and the dust. Isn't this very similar to what we see at Pentecost? When in the upper room the disciples had gathered right and there appeared unto them cloven tongues of fire. The Spirit of God always represented as fire. And I want to show you a few things that this revival fire of God did on that day. Number one, it consumed the burnt, it consumed the burnt sacrifice. It devoured, it devoured the offering. It took it all, right? And I like to think of this sacrifice as those of us who pray for revival. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells us this, right? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Oh, my, my goodness, church, listen to me. Many times we have to be that sacrifice. Many times we need to say to the Lord, Lord, I place myself upon that altar of sacrifice, Lord, and through your revival fire consume everything, everything in me that's not Christ. The revival fire consumed the sacrifice. Leonard Ravenhill says this, and I love this statement. I love it very much. God does not want partnership with us, but ownership of us. Have you turned yourself over to God? Say, God, I'm yours. I'm yours. I don't care about anything. Father, you have me for your glory. Look at the second thing it did. Not only did it consume the burnt sacrifice, but it consumed the wood. The wood in the altar is used for energy, but fire didn't start conventionally, did it? Instead, it was created. It was created by God. It was created by God. And the wood is our work, and it's our efforts. And when the fire of God descends on our actions... Our energy is replaced by the power of God. 
What revival fire does, what revival and awakening does is we may labor and labor and try to do all these other different things, but revival fire gives us the quickening. It gives us the energy for the work of God. Look at the third thing. It consumed the stones. Now we know from the text that here the stones are symbolic of God's heart for the 12 tribes of Israel. But we could even think of the stones, if we want to think about them figuratively, right, as these are the complex objects in our lives. And God empowers us to overcome these complexities through His grace. With revival fire comes repentance. And it is through repentance that God's purifying power overcomes the hardness in our heart. The Word of God tells us, the prophet Jeremiah says, Is not my word a hammer that shattereth the stone? Look at the fourth thing. It consumed the dust. The dust! It consumed the dust. I'm assuming he had to cut wood. I'm assuming that there was dust all around the trench. But even the useless dust it consumed. And what revival fire will do will consume even the useless elements of our lives. Look at the fifth thing. It licked up the water in the trench. Now figuratively, figuratively, the water represents the impossible, right? He poured the water. You're not supposed to get fire with water. You use water to put out a fire. But here the prophet Elijah used water, and then the fire of God descended. Think for a moment that Elijah prayed for fire, but he doused the wood with water. And we know that if you want fire from wood, you're not going to get it with water. But the prayer of the righteous availeth much. Where are the impossibilities in your life? Where are the things that are blocking you from a deeper, fuller, richer relationship with Christ? What are the things? Is it finance? Is it illness? Is it indifference? And let me tell you something. There is true indifference. We are living in a day of apostasy. There's a great falling away, a great falling away from the things of God. But the prayer of the righteous avails must. The prophet of God prayed with the right heart for God. This is what we have to understand. He had the right heart for God. And the revival fire descended from God and overcame every impossible element. Consumed the stones, consumed the dust, consumed the water, consumed the wood, and consumed the sacrifice. What was the result? Verse 39. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, He is God, the Lord. He is God at this great miracle that takes place. God was not interested in just putting on a show. God sent revival fire to change the hearts of the people. And what happened? They fell on their 
face and they declared, the Lord is God. I'm not looking for a head nod. I'm not looking for any kind of an acknowledgement. But I want to ask you a question. When was the last time you were so awestruck with the power of God that you fell on your face and you declared you are God? You are God. You are holy. I know that many people don't even know what it is to fall on their face before God. But just like God didn't give up on Israel, God doesn't give up on us. And what we need as a church and what the church at large in America needs is a revival, a revival of, 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 of biblical proportions, a revival where the Spirit of God descends like the prophet Isaiah said, rend the heavens and come down, Lord, where, where the prophet Jeremiah cried out, call unto me and I will show thee new things. I will show you things that you do not even know, which you know it's not, where the power of God descends with such authority and such might that the people of God need to fall on their face and say, truly thou art God, truly thou art God. That's what you see in every great revival. In every great revival comes a move of repentance and the people of God, the churchgoers, not the sinners, the churchgoers, go on their face and they say, oh God, have mercy, have mercy. And as a people of God, we need to pray, we need to seek God, we need to cry out to God so that we could get a similar response, that the Lord would have mercy upon us that we could fall on our face and cry that thou art God. Church, I don't think I need to remind you, God is still on the throne. Amen. The same God who sent fire from heaven in the days of Elijah is the same God who sent fire on the day of Pentecost. He's the God of Peter. He's the God of Paul. He's the God of John. He's the God of John Huss. He's the God of the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, the God of Wycliffe, Tyndale, and Knox, and Whitfield, and Wesley, and Spurgeon, and Moody, and Ravenhill, and Martin Lloyd-Jones. He's my God. Amen. He's my God, and I love him. Amen. This God does not grow weary. His arm is not short that it cannot save. His ear is not dull that he cannot hear. Samuel Chadwick said of Elijah the prophet this, he prayed with prayer. He prayed in his prayer. This is to say, he did not say prayers. He prayed in praying. His whole personality was in his praying. And he really wanted what he asked, and fervently meant what he said. I love that statement. He didn't say prayers. He was prayer. His whole being was caught up in prayer. Listen, church, we need Elijah's today. We need Elijah's today. We need Elijah in our church. Let us not grow weary in praying. Don't grow. We have a prayer meeting every Wednesday night. 
That is a great place to start. On Wednesday night, we're learning what it means to move the heart of God as we pray through tears, as we pray through urgency, as we pray with expectancy. We are calling on God the way Elijah called on God and said, Lord, rend the heavens and come down. And we need to pray for the revival fire of God. Listen, it's wake-up time. It's wake-up time for the church. And I said this Tuesday night, if you weren't on Tuesday night, you'll hear it now. But this is truth. This is truth. You can't, you can't turn your eyes to truth. Partial love for Jesus does not result in complete salvation in Christ. A partial love for Jesus does not result in that. The sinner will not sit in the kingdom of God next to the saint. The lethargic, lazy person is not going to be there in the same context as the suffering saint who persevered on in Christ at all cost. What we need is not less of Christ. Can we agree on that at least? We don't need less of Christ. We need more of Christ. And it must, it must begin in our church. It must begin in our church. I would rather have no church than to pastor a dead church. Amen. And this is my heart for the Stand Firm Conference. This is my heart for the Stand Firm Conference. That God would awaken His church. Our church. And that the revival fire of God would descend from heaven and begin a work here among us in this little place that will spread across Orange County, spread across the city of Orlando, spread across our state, that maybe one day should the Lord Jesus Christ tarry, maybe one day they'll talk about the day on February 9th, 10th, and 11th when the revival of fire fell upon a small group of people who believe God for His work. Join with me in prayer.